Improv comedy has given us Mike Nichols, Harold Ramis, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, Gilda Radner, Amy Poehler, Alan Arkin, Tina Fey. I'm running out of oxygen. From a CD bar near the University of Chicago to a full-fledged American art form, Sam Wasson's Improv Nation gives you the whole story. It's available wherever books are sold. Grab your copy today. Hey, folks, I want to tell you about the best podcast in music, and that is Culture Creature. It features entertaining conversations with the world's best musicians, including members of Run DMC, Rage Against the Machine, Faith No More, Fugazi, and many more. You'll hear your favorite artists share unforgettable stories and discuss the music, movies, and art that changed their lives. Subscribe to Culture Creature today in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also view all episodes at culturecreature.com slash podcast. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I am the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I am also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also here to do two things. One is to make you a promise, and the other is to do a damn good podcast today. We're going to have a good time. And here's more about that second thing, the podcast. Our two guests today are fantastic. One is Cracked executive editor and New York Times bestselling author, Jason Pargin, who writes under the name David Wong and is always good on the podcast every time. Surefire thing. Stone cold lock. Third idiom. He's great. Our other guest is writer and comedian Zach Bornstein. You have seen his writing everywhere from Saturday Night Live to Jimmy Kimmel Live to The New Yorker to his sketch group Garlic Jackson. I know that's a silly name. They probably picked it because Saturday Night Live is taken. They're great. And you know your boy Schmitty will have some sweet, sweet footnotes of fun sketches that Zach's done and just other people have done because we talk about a lot of comedy on this comedy podcast. Our topic today is the idea of conservative comedy. The world of comedy has so many daily shows and John Oliver's, and why isn't there another version? Why isn't there an alternative? Is it something cultural about comedians? Is it something about overall bias? Is it because only brilliant people are liberal? Who knows? We're going to get into it, and I'm so excited about how we do it. I feel like we nailed that good podcast thing, that second thing I talked about. Now, about that first thing of making you a promise, you listen to that show. We value that you do that. That is a cool thing. And I want to promise you that we will be 100% honest on this show. I swear by the author Kurt Vonnegut's first rule of writing, which is, quote, use the time of a total stranger in such a way that he or she will not feel the time was wasted. End quote. Amen, Kurt. And I feel it would be the biggest and worst waste of your time to bullshit you. I intend to say nothing but true things to you. And right now, the most significant true thing I can say is how fun this episode is and how happy I am you've chosen to listen to it. We're going to have a great time. So please sit back or continue driving in a safe fashion. Hey, turn your neck when you check blind spots, okay? Not, not just a glance. You want to really look. Anyway, enjoy this episode of The Cracked Podcast with Jason Pargin over the phone and Zach Bornstein in the studio. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. We are joined on the phone by Cracked Executive Editor, bestselling author, and many other things, Jason Pargin, who writes for Cracked as David Wong. Hello, Jason. Hello. Hey. 
And uh, we're also joined in the studio by, he's written for Saturday Night Live, Jimmy Kimmel Live, and Garlic Jackson and so many other things, Zach Bornstein. Hello, Happy thanks for having me. Oh, oh, that's very yeah. kind. Our topic today is something that I, I particularly wanted to talk about, and especially with both of you, which is that I've just come to notice that the vast majority of the comedy I consume, and I consume a lot of it, is coming from institutions and places and people who are relatively either what we you would call left or liberal, or they're just in the middle and it's not about politics at all as much as anything can be. There's no established institution that's super popular or excellent or anything like that that I know of that you would call like conservative comedy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm fascinated by that, but also in in talking to both of you and in particular Jason about this in advance, wow. it seems like there's a lot of ways that maybe isn't true or, or there's variations on that. For some background for the people who aren't familiar with me, because these are things I've discussed in the podcast before, like I'm somebody who voted for Republicans right up until Obama showed up. So in my spent my the 90s listening to talk radio and I have to tell you and I mean right wing talk radio I have to tell you at the time I found it hilarious and not like ironically <laughs> hilarious like when Rush Limbaugh would do some bit uh making fun of gay people I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard now obviously now I don't What's like a Rush Limbaugh bit it was exactly the same as like the Daily Show, where he would. It was mostly media criticism, right? Mm. So he would show like how the media was covering a thing, and then would cut back to himself with his sarcastic comment or whatever, and had these running features the same way John Oliver does these running features, and it was just from you know a point of view of the right that the world had become too tolerant of things and of deviant behavior, so. And it's the same thing that those shows do where you're carefully selecting for like the dumbest members of the other side. So he could easily go find like some extreme hippie activist from San Francisco giving a speech somewhere saying something that's like objectively crazy and then he would just make fun of it. You pick like the big targets, right? And so it was the it was the same deal. Whereas if I if I went back and listened to recordings of that now, I would just hear like hate speech. But it didn't <laughs> I didn't wasn't thinking that way at the time. So my point of view is that I think a lot of this is kind of like inside the bubble thinking where the comedy exists, we just don't recognize it as comedy. It's like, well that's not a joke. That's just a hateful person. Yeah, it's more just agreeing with what they hate and that they're passing off as comedy. I, in thinking about this, like my most of, I think all of my touchstones, but uh, like starting to get into comedy were things like The Daily Show. And so mm-hmm. it's like, oh, this is the primary angle it's at. I remember at one point, didn't uh, Fox tried to do, I think you sound like Zach about like Fox tried to do a conservative version of The, the Daily Half Hour show. News Show. Yeah, they yeah. were just like, oh, we'll do ours. It and was then, by the guy who made 24. He was like, why are all these these liberal shows bashing Bush? <laughs> there should be there should be a, a, a daily show celebrating Bush for the genius <laughs> he is for these tax cuts I'm getting. Yeah, which, as you say, it sounds like a really hard position to do comedy from, to just be like, isn't he great? And that's it. <laughs> I don't know how you do that. <laughs> I was listening to Rush Limbaugh during the Clinton years. See, so he was taking on the power structure at the time. That, like, that's how right. I perceived it as a like a white kid in the Midwest. The hippies own the government, and you know we're we're the resistance. You know we're the ones because we're being taxed to death, and 
uh, the immigrants are taking over, all of all of that stuff. It, it was everyone views themselves as being on you know the, the side of the repressed because that's like where the street cred is, right? Like everybody. So I think he saw, or at least I saw it at the time, as like this is this is the new gangster rap because we're this is the new dangerous dangerous thing that people are saying because after all look at how mad they're getting about it sure i can't imagine anything less gangster than rush limbaugh though <laughs> i guess the the you touch on yeah. a good point though which is like comedy serves as like the counterculture like you want to be making fun of the person in power and like moving things forward you want to be punk rock like it got me so pissed when trump supporters would say that like this like new conservatism alt-right is like the new punk rock but really they're just conservatism can never be punk rock or counterculture because the ideology is based on trying to return things to the past it's never moving anything forward make america great again is trying to you know you're trying to move backwards in time so it can never be punk rock, which is always going to be that kind of vibe is always going to be a forward moving progressive thing. Well, I, I, I would think so. Yeah, because while well, I've seen occasionally the alt right call itself like, oh, this is very punk and exciting what Ugh. we're doing. And then my read on it is, well, you guys specifically, it's just racism. Like, it's, not, it's, it's out of favor because we've moved on. Like, yeah, it's like saying that oh, like man. a typewriter and like horse and buggies are like punk right. rock. That's not punk rock. You're just doing something old that we figured out was bad. Sure. Let me let me tell you how what they're saying is the exact same thing. Because the message from the the right is the left just wants to take us back to communism, to 1930s Russia. The left wants to roll back to the olden days where the government controlled everything, where you would have a monarch that has total control over people's lives, where the new innovation of the free market, Reaganism, those things, that's the new thing that we never fully implemented they they would always cast these everything talking about feminism they would always cast it as old 1960s washed out hippies they're old we're new and fresh we're the new thing that ju- has just come along um but it's the exact same thing you're saying now it, like they i totally felt like i was on the bleeding edge of you know of society uh, because it's you know again I, i'm uh, a high school and college kid and you know during those years and it's like this is the opposite of what everybody all the grown-ups are saying so therefore this must be the next big thing because we have discovered the truth that you know the mainstream doesn't want us to to know i think i'm realizing outside of political comedy even just regular comedy it will often pick on old people or like stuffy people like it's the marx brothers having fun and then margaret dumont being like oh fuh, 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 what's going on just because she's the older person who can't handle the the young the, and it's fascinating that both sides of the spectrum would push into that right well it just seems like comedy's built on punching up like you want to always yeah. be punching up to the people in more power than you big donors and big money things they tend to be the up like the like stodgy people so it seems like yeah. And the things that the right attacks the left for are like low paid workers and immigrants and stuff. And that would that will always be punching down, right. which is why it doesn't feel like it works comedy wise. 
Yeah. And it's interesting because also I would imagine a lot of people on the right are like, oh, no, but the left is backed by George Soros and these <laughs> other large, wealthy people, which to some extent is true. And and then maybe they have that same framing uh, just their way of sure. like, oh, we're fighting for the downtrodden other kind of person that they forget about. And then it's just all a cycle where we're all yelling. Yeah, where really it just ends up just there's like nine rich people who are getting us to fight with each other and they're all doing perfectly fine. Yeah. <laughs> You're touching on like the reason comedy exists because like the narrative, like the phrasing about punching up versus punching down, that's something like within writer circles we use that phrasing a lot and i see it on twitter a lot mm -hmm. i don't know if the average person in the street thinks in those terms like the comedy that's making fun of someone who's not in power is punching down and then a comedy is more righteous when it's making fun of the king you know it, it's you're making the uh powerful people uncomfortable it's yeah. pointing out the hypocrisy of like people who are in power rather than going like, hey, look at that homeless man. He's stinky. Like that's punching <laughs> down. That's it's you're not helping yeah. anyone with that. You're just like someone who's already doing bad. You're making them worse. Yeah. The, the up and down are hierarchical up and down. Like it's all go yeah. the beat up the, 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 the uh, uh, above you. Yeah. Yeah. In reality, like in everyday life, comedy is actually as far as I, I've observed, it's used for two distinct purposes. And it's not as simple as punching up or punching down. The first purpose is to enforce conformity. This is where you're making fun of the fat kid. You're making fun of the, the weird kid in school, you know, the one who dresses strange. Like the reason you walk down the street, everyone is wearing pants because as a society, if you don't wear pants, we'll make fun of you. We, most of the social rules of a polite world Comedy and mockery and shame are like how we keep people in line. It's like gently pointing out outliers. Like this could be extremely cruel because you're enforcing a lot of like, a you know, shallow appearance standards, things like that. But it can also be just every day, like teaching people how, how to live. Like I learned <laughs> not to wear it. I learned not to wear a hat because people made fun of my hat. And then now I realize, oh, hats are... Hats like this look stupid, apparently. They've <laughs> warned me before before the greater society could ostracize me for wearing this hat. To touch on what you're saying, like it's nice when you get made fun of because then it's like you're realizing what you do that's outside of the norm. When you find out what people make fun yeah. of you for behind your back, you can be like, oh, that's the shitty part of my personality <laughs> that I need to work on getting rid of so i think it yeah. can, that that aspect of it can be negative and stomping out the weird kids but it can also be good for like teaching people not to be an asshole in a gentle way yeah and yeah. here's where even if you're listening to like a left-wing piece of commentary they can't resist straying into this when they make fun of chris christie they're going to make a fat joke when they make fun of Mitch McConnell, they're going to make fun of the fact that he looks like a turtle. When they make fun of Sarah Palin, they're going to make fun of her lipstick, her mannerisms, her accent, <laughs> things that have nothing to do with actually punching up. Because, again, when you're making fun of that accent, you're making fun of everyone who has that accent, yeah. not just her. You're yeah. saying that accent is stupid. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's the thing that I wish people didn't make fun of Chris Christie for being fat, because that's like 90% of the jokes about him. But he's such a garbage piece of shit right. that is stealing <laughs> money from people of New Jersey and enriching himself. And yet you're the thing him... people go after him for is his belly. And you're letting him off the hook for the other stuff. You're the bad guy when you make fun of Chris Christie for being fat. He's the bad guy when you make fun of him for being, you know, 
a tax dodging piece of shit. You even you even see it with relatively not prominent people too. Like I don't know if you guys remember that lady Kim Davis, mm-hmm. who yeah. was a like city employee <laughs> who who did uh, prejudice things against a, a gay couple. But also, I I just saw such aggressive mockery of her appearance. Yeah, just what she looked like when the actual wrong thing she did is so cut and dried. It's so easy to focus on, and people still just like ran past that to be like, and she's a silly looking lady. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which was awful. Or making fun of making fun of the way the Nazis dressed when they had that stupid tiki torch protest. Which again, there's value there because you're demystifying the Nazis. You're saying, look, these are a bunch of nerds and polo shirts who couldn't find like scary looking torches. They literally had to go to Target <laughs> and buy like tiki torch. Like like that stuff has value because it's puncturing like the image they want to put forth. You're you're skewing it, right? Like so, in some cases that's fine. But like during Gamergate, which I guess is still going on, but when we make fun of those people, we can't resist calling them virgins or ugly neckbeards in their parent their parents' basements. Because after all, these are guys who are into anime and yelling at women on, in gaming. But you're now enforcing things like social norms like sexual performance as something to be ashamed of. Mm-hmm. Calling someone a virgin as that being an insult. So you're enforcing like social norms rather than doing anything with a power structure and you don't even notice yourself doing it. And you get positive feedback for it too. Like you get, like especially on the left, if you're making fun of Gamergates or being idiots and then you also make fun of them for their looks, people will reinforce that. Like they'll go, oh, that's funnier. So keep doing it. So there's no one telling you not to make fun of them for being, you know, neckbeard virgins. Yeah, you can even gather data on how much people are reinforcing it. You can <laughs> yeah. be like, oh, X, versus, X amount of retweets versus X amount of retweets. Oh, well, I should change that. Um, so then that's one purpose of comedy serves. The other main purpose is it acts as sort of a safety valve when there's an idea in society that is incorrect, but that is being enforced for other reasons, like superstitions where the church says the earth is the center of the universe, and if you say otherwise, we'll we'll burn you at the stake. It's something where lots of people suspect it's wrong, but are afraid to say it's wrong because there are social norms that prevent that perpetuate bad information or bad or incorrect attitudes. Comedy has always given people cover to uh, pierce that. To mock the king, to make jokes about the king, to make jokes about the church, about and because it's done in the name of comedy, it re- acts as like a tension relief because you're saying the thing that everybody wishes they could say. So we think of that as punching up, like this is where you're making fun of the power structures. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it's basically anything that everyone suspected was wrong. And so even like observational comedy, like, well, why did we agree that in an elevator you have to face the door? Like, well, if you walk into an elevator and face the rear of the elevator, everybody freaks out. Like, it it gives the system a process by which you can re-examine every behavior and say, is there a reason we do this? When you explain the purpose of comedy, that sucks all the joy out of it. But <laughs> the reason you laugh, the reason you laugh at that is because they've they've taken something in your mind that was unexamined and pulled it out, and and that feels good to do that. So it, we yeah. call, we call it punching up, but it's not that simple. But it, that's one of the things that it does. Well, it I makes th- fun of. I think the power that structure. version is like applying a logic to something that is just assumed. 
you have all these assumptions about what why things are and you're applying like why is that the case so knowing that the issue with comedy right now and i think now more than ever like this feels more like that alex that divide you sense i think that's stronger now than it ever was the divide between left wing comedy and right wing comedy because one of the examples i jimmy fallon has seen his empire crumble in the trump era because he like tried to not take a side he was like nice to trump one time and then half the country like totally abandoned him yeah and he's not conservative enough to be liked by the conservatives and he's not liberal yeah. enough to be like you can't be a centrist in these day and age because the echo chambers won't allow it because you have to appeal to one or the other it's a tricky balance because uh, especially for somebody like him because when i think of oh what are the large comedy institutions like, like there's comedy from all kinds of places but what are the large organizations or platforms and when i try to list it i keep coming up with daily show john oliver snl the Onion, big late night hosts. Like, it's all people who are either toward the left or in the middle. Mm -hmm. And yeah, with Fallon, he his Tonight Show was leading the ratings year after year for a in long time. In the Obama time. era, yeah. And then he, uh, a few people have written about it. My favorite piece about it is by Dave Itzkoff. It's called Jimmy Fallon Was on Top of the World, Then Came Trump. And it's about the now famous time when he had Donald Trump on his show. He ruffled Donald Trump's hair like a, like he's just some little cute cherub of a fella, you know? <laughs> and then immediately that plus Stephen Colbert taking on Trump aggressively every night, the ratings flipped. Suddenly Colbert is the top show week in, week out. And, and Jimmy Fallon is trying to figure out what happened from hanging out with Trump one time, you know, like it's, yeah, it's people amazing. People feel like they like sniff out any kind of like empathy towards the other side. You're done. Like if you could yeah. even seem like you have one conservative opinion or help Trump in any way, you're gone. Yeah. And he didn't even like parrot his opinions on the show or something. He just let him hang out and didn't criticize him. Yeah. I think he, he, I think Trump deserves all the criticism in the world, but Jimmy Fallon got lumped in with him just by being present with him. It's that image, too. It's hard to escape yeah, that image. It's killer, yeah. And he's aware of it, too. He's self-aware of how bad that looked at the time. Because yeah. even when he came to SNL, he mentioned, like, you know, you guys are free to make fun of me for that. It's not like I ruffled oh, really? his hair and he won because of that. <laughs> like, he's aware of how dumb it was sure. and how much it was taken out of control. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, very cool of him to be like, yeah, go ahead. Because yeah. for being one arm motion, it was such a landmark. It was such yeah. a thing. I've never had an arm motion make that much difference in my life. <laughs> I can think of small, nice moments in my life that arm motions have created, but not like a, a career ender. Well, Jason, you were saying the, the divide's very clear now. And I think also, you, as we emailed, you'd picked out another sphere of the other side having comedy that I hadn't really examined. I want to talk about the Jim Lee Fallon thing for a moment, because the issue with what he did on the show, it was the absence of an attack. Yeah. This is the bind we at Cracked.com, the famous entertainment outlet, ran into also starting last year, not after the election, starting during the campaign. It became clear, like I could listen to a podcast, like a sports podcast with Bill Simmons. I could go on a sports website like Deadspin and read paragraph after paragraph of people tearing into Trump. These are in articles with, with headlines that are about 
why is the 49ers offense so bad? <laughs> and you can run into criticism of, of Trump. The, the landscape became that. Absence of criticism of Trump was in many cases treated exactly the same way as open support of Trump. Yeah, it's like willful silence because, not attacking him. Right, because it would be the same thing if you found out that like your kid's history class covered World War II and never mentioned Hitler. Yeah. The, <laughs> the absence is weird, like it suggests an agenda, right? Or if someone te- teaches about civil war and never mentions slavery, they've got an agenda. Like you know, if, if their defense is, well, how can you say I have an opinion on slavery? I merely didn't mention it. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, well, that's a glaring omission. It's in every aspect now. Like, even when the hashtag MeToo's were coming around, any anyone who is silent, you notice. You notice silence now for the first time huh, in this, yeah. like, climate. It's like you're saying. Like, it's not talking about the Holocaust. It's, like, going on around us, and you have to always be mentioning it, or else you're just, like, silent majority letting it go along un- unchallenged. Right. And there was a time when that was not true. I'm not, this is not rose-colored glasses here. Once upon a time, you could do something like have George Bush on a talk show. And, I mean, George Bush Sr. This is pre-9-11 or whatever. And it was just the president. And he he had a certain amount of respect. And we just all agreed he's the president. You may not agree with him, but it wasn't an outrage. I mean, he's the president. He's everybody's president. You could show a basketball game or whatever, or, you know, if Obama was at a... Lakers game, you could cut to Obama in the stands with his family. You know, the announcers are not like, well, over the screams of the fans, you can hear the screams of all of the unborn children that have been murdered (laughs) under Obama. (laughs) Like, it's just understood that there's a middle ground. You and there's a way to make fun of these figures without, and that's gone. So, we you know, kind of made a conscious decision to let people write about Trump and let people talk about him. And among our writers and our audience, there wasn't a lot of pro-Trump sentiment. You know, it felt like there really wasn't an option of just ignoring it because, good God, it's all anyone was talking about on any given day. Like, you can't just cut yourself out of the conversation. So you're forced to take a side. And I guess you could say, well, yeah, but you should have been more balanced in your coverage. But I don't even know how to balance it. It hasn't been articulated that well, but I I remember even at SNL, like there would be like two sketches, three sketches a week that didn't mention Trump or like some kind of thing with him. And it would be like, those are like the most sacred ones of like having the luxury <laughs> of not talking about him for a second yeah. would be like what you go after. Like to be able to like make a joke on Twitter that's not about, you know, current events or about Trump is like, that's like one of the things I miss most about the Obama era now is just to be able to focus on other things and like be able to like talk yeah. about improving other parts of our life. Anything not like you're saying that's not attacking Trump feels like disingenuine or like you're missing the point. Yeah, I remember we uh, we did a live episode of this show at UCB and it was right after the election and the planned topic involved uh, video games and just like video game worlds and what would be fun. And so we did the show about video game worlds and stuff and multiple people came up to me after and were like, it was like weirdly refreshing that that didn't involve President Donald Trump. It, the video game thing was just about video games. And I was like, I mean, yeah, I don't know. But he he seems to actively insert himself into everything, too. Jason, I know when you were talking about sports sites, I know you were talking about them just as sports sites. 
probably before he had said as much about Colin Kaepernick and things, but he he kind of finds a way, it seems like with every topic, to decide to somehow put himself into it. Like yeah, he's really courting it. I think it's a political technique because for him, he turns every issue into two sides. Like yeah. somehow he was able to divide football into yeah. two camps and somehow the liberals ended up with football. Like I was not expecting that one at all. But oh, it's just like every topic yeah. <laughs> has two sides and that helps him when we're more divided because it it just strengthens the base. Even if he's getting people more against him, it also brings more people into his fold. Football's particularly strange too because I'm in like a weird third camp where because I stopped watching football going into this year for completely non Donald Trump reasons. Like I'm upset reasons? about the brain injuries yeah, mainly, yeah. And, and then other business things they do. And so sure. when I tell people ah, I'm not watching the NFL, occasionally they'd be like because you're a Trump supporter? Like, what are you... And I was like, no, it's like, I know there's this battle, but I'm in a third battle, and I know there, you know, those are the battles, and let's work with it. He turned everything. <laughs> like, you can't... I want to boycott the NFL, because they do really shitty things to yeah, people. Yeah, they're real gross. Yeah. yeah. But now that's on our side, so we gotta watch it. <laughs> you know, once upon a time, something like the Harvey Weinstein scandal, that wouldn't have been seen as a political scandal. But right. it absolutely is. Yeah. Like when Bill Cosby got brought down, that wasn't political. It just was Bill Cosby. It wasn't liberal <laughs> yeah. icon Bill Cosby. But but now it ties into like feminism and, well, we elected Trump and he harassed women and, and the concept of like male power structure. And in some ways, I guess that's good. Like it gets us talking about things that we before would have just kept it to, well, this is another pervert. We've caught another pervert in our midst Instead of putting it in the context of like power in society mm -hmm. and how that goes all the way up, everything is like it's like on a scorecard. It's like, well, see, we've got a liberal icon who's been taken down now. So now we've got to find a conservative we can take down to even mm -hmm. up the score. And it's all in that context now. It's all in the context of of politics. And like figuring out how to navigate this is something we've been kind of making up on the fly because we didn't anticipate it. I think about myself, the person I was in 1996 or whatever. If I had started reading Cracked for our lists of the five dumbest things Batman has ever done, and then I suddenly couldn't show up on the site without feeling like I was being called a racist every day, <laughs> I would stop. I would have stopped coming, right? Because that's how I would interpret it. Because, you know, I, I, I like to think... At the time, like I didn't just blindly follow everything Republicans said, but I definitely talked myself into candidates. And George W. Bush ran, like my impression was that he's not a genius, but that he's, I thought he was a decent person. He had no like corruption in his past and he just seemed like, like his dad, like a yeah, decent, he wasn't a war criminal yet. An empty suit. Yeah. Again, this was like 1996. This is, you know, during the dot com bubble and everything is, you know, we had been at peace and, you know, in the Clinton years, there's some scandal stuff the, the nation was sick of. So I talked myself into people. I don't know if I would have talked myself into Trump, but I wasn't a white supremacist. I, I wasn't. So if I had just wanted to come to crack to read like these fun lists about history and about science and stuff and all the stuff we covered. And then suddenly every other thing has to mention Trump and you're making Trump jokes and unrelated articles, the same as my sports podcast is doing. I would probably hate it. And I would probably go try to find 
outlets that, and the only place you're going to find outlets that don't do that are ones that are, are explicitly right wing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that stuff exists. And I think when we talk about what well, all of the big institutions are left wing, you know, Saturday Night Live and, and The Tonight Show and all this, I think we are talking about old, out of touch institutions. And I think all of the young people who are more right wing have found other thriving outlets that go unnoticed by us. But they don't have like comedy shows like they had that one weird one on Adult Swim and they have like the piece of shit Jesse Waters who should be in a well somewhere. (laughs) Their comedy is like Facebook memes. They don't have anyone smart enough to be like poking holes in the progressives. I wish we could invite one of these people on the show, but I know it would just be a disaster because there is a thriving comedy scene that I don't laugh at it because I think what they're saying is horrible. But there's podcasts, there's YouTube shows, some of which have audiences 10 times what are listening to this podcast. There's people out there like uh, Dick Masterson, you know, Sam Hyde is still out there, like even after his show got canceled, like these guys have gotten banned from other outlets. They use that as street cred as to prove that they are the punk rock. The things that reach us, like, you know, the really hateful, like Facebook memes, things like that. It is a big meta joke on 4chan and other places where these people hang out. And I'm telling you, the kids, the modern kids, they're not right wing in that you're sensing that they're out there talking about capital gains taxes or, you know, gosh, I wish we had Reagan again. (laughs) They're right wing in the sense that they are very anti-PC culture. They're very, to a large degree, anti-feminist. They're very big on like a view of equality that's like, you know, we, we just treat, let's treat everybody the same. Like we don't need special laws or whatever. And they are very, 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 very anti-censorship. Mm-hmm. And every single time somebody like who, what was the guy at Google who wrote the manifesto about how women can't code? And so we should stop trying. James Damore. Yeah. It was a Google James engineer. DeMar. Yeah. When Ever a guy like that gets pushed out of his job by the left, whenever a guy like Milo tries to come to a college campus and a bunch of people physically stop him from speaking, whenever somebody gets their show gets canceled over a boycott because they made a racist joke or a joke about Muslims or a joke about women or a joke about whatever, it boosts their cred a little more and makes it a little clearer to the teenagers and the people in that demographic, a, a generation who I think to a large degree, those other institutions have lost. It makes it clear right here, this is the cool, edgy truth that the exact same thing I felt when I first started listening to gangster rap for the first time and realized how much my parents would hate it. That's how they feel because this is the stuff that is too hot for TV. This is the stuff that Saturday Night Live, which once upon a time was the edgy, groundbreaking thing, this is stuff that they will ban you for saying. Well, and also that just encourages them to be trolls and to punch down into the, say, even more extreme racist things. Because the crazier Alex Jones says something, the more he gets made fun of by John Oliver, gets made fun of by The Daily Show. And then that just boosts his profile on the right. Like if someone on the left is attacking you, all of a sudden that means you must be important enough 
and have enough credentials to be attacked by these big people. So it kind of puts you at the same level. The people who love Milo Yiannopoulos love him because they see him as basically doing like an Andy Kaufman thing. He has the way he dresses, the way he talks, the phrasing he uses is all carefully calculated to make people as upset as possible. The people who love him and who claim to love him, the 100% of the entertainment value is in seeing the liberals get triggered. Brian Tucker had this great tweet about it that like conservatives will shoot themselves in the foot just because it makes liberals upset. Like they'll fuck themselves just to like the like yeah. to them comedy is just like upsetting people. There's a meme among uh, people I follow on Twitter for the most part where it's that the conservatives want to all own the libs and then in order to own the libs they do something incredibly stupid. Like when uh, when Sean Hannity started to get <laughs> yeah, boycotted by various thing. advertisers or, or he lost the advertiser Keurig and then people started destroying their K-cups and then Sean Hannity lost Toyota. So everyone was joking like, okay, destroy your Toyotas, guys. <laughs> like, lose well, your cars. <laughs> you're just breaking the $150 coffee machine. You're not hurting liberals. You're just... You're just right. an idiot. You're just like, like have your coffee. Like, yeah. Don't, yeah. <laughs> Doing a huge favor for the environment in the process. <laughs> like destroying <laughs> your Keurig. Like it should be, it should be the hippies begging you to destroy your Keurig and to please just make it, you know, in a coffee press. It, it, you don't need to, this thing that uses an enormous amount of electricity and produces these little capsules of waste every time. We have carefully found like the dumbest example of conservatives doing things. And that's what they do. Go spend the next week in the Donald subreddit. Go spend the next week on 4chan's political board, politically incorrect. Go, just go hang out around them. Most of it is comedy. It's it's mockery of of liberals and and dumb liberals and the the all of the things we pretend are true but plainly are not. And then so they have fun skewing our hypocrisy yeah and that's and whenever we like refuse to even let them go out in public and state their opinion like that just proves their point because after all surely that must mean it's true the logic goes from someone like that is like if they're so scared to hear it like the dangerous truth or whatever i remember like like george carlin getting banned from carnegie hall or whatever because of the language he used like that boosted his street cred through the roof, like everybody wanted to hear what this guy had to say by saying, well, we're not going to allow this point of view on network television, man, you're doing them in a huge favor. It's like, do you honestly think that's that silences them? Like really today? Support for today's show comes from seat geek. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated and confusing, but there's a better way to buy with SeatGeek. It's the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. You like going out and having fun? Do it cheaply and easily and the best optimal way possible with SeatGeek. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out, or need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There is nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. 
I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. And not only is it great for seeing your absolute favorite things, it's also great for discovering new things. I have never seen the Los Angeles Clippers play basketball. I am about to. SeatGeek's app made it super, super easy to find surprisingly fantastic tickets at a surprisingly cheap price. It was all right there on my phone, and I did it from bed. And you can have the easy, cool life of Schmitty if you do that kind of thing with the SeatGeek app. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. And best of all, our listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase from the app. That's right, 20 bucks off, just for you. Download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code CRACKED today. That is promo code CRACKED, C-R-A-C-K-E-D, for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. I want to touch on a couple conservative comedy spaces that we've mentioned in passing. Sam Hyde came up and also Zachy mentioned that Adult Swim show Million Dollar Extreme, which is Sam Hyde and a couple other people. That's something that I did hear about and I was like, oh, apparently this is a conservative version of comedy. I'll go check it out. If they want to trigger people uh, success, I was very upset by it. I couldn't I couldn't <laughs> stand it when I watched it. And I don't even think it was the pace of it or the editing or anything because I love Tim and Eric and I love a lot of other shows that like move like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that. And also you mentioned Jesse Waters is still a person on Fox and was like basically I, as far as I can tell, his role previously was to do funny man-on-the-street stuff on Bill O'Reilly's show. Mm -hmm. It was a segment called Waters World. And the main one I've seen is he just goes to Chinatown and says insulting things to Asian people. Yeah, and and does like like, an Asian voice. He does that. It's got like a gong sound in it, if I remember right. Yeah, it does. It's stuff that I read as flat-out racism, and apparently there is an audience for it. But then also, I don't know if I'm only receiving the conservative comedy that the internet's been outraged by and there's actually like stuff that works somewhere. What's like good, you know? can, like uh, the thing is I don't think it can ever be good because a lot of their stuff breaks down illogically. Like a lot of the the conservative arguments right now don't work logically. They have to come from like a place of hate <laughs> and insanity and like if you like think about it in a comedy way, it doesn't, it falls apart. I just can't see it ever working it works when they are able to call out the hypocrisy of the left it works when they can find the dumbest examples of what we're doing in skewer because for instance one thing that the left does that they love to take on in general it's been my experience if i turn into a right-wing outlet doing this kind of commentary if i go to Who's the the vice the former vice founder who has the oh, podcast now? Gavin McInnes, is that right? Gavin McInnes, yeah, you yeah. go on his show. Anything like that, I get the sense that they tend to mention Lena Dunham like every thirty seconds. Yeah, I've noticed that um, too because yeah. she is like the perfect for them, the perfect straw man to hold up as someone who is very liberal, not very articulate in articulating these points says lots of things that seem very regressive and dumb and contradictory. She's very easy to skewer. She's very easy. And she seems, it seems like she has given a platform. She spoke at the democratic national convention. Yeah. But the thing is the progressives go after her just as much as conservatives do. Like when she was trying to defend her showrunner from sexual assault charges, even though she's been like one of the biggest me too yeah. advocates. Or, or he all... was a writer on it or something, I think. Yeah. yeah and then yeah. all of a sudden, 
progressives were like, fuck you. Like, the news, <laughs> a bunch of writers quit her, like, newsletter and blog and stuff. And so they just hold her up as, like, she's our liberal icon. But liberals aren't, like, 100% on her anymore either. Um, sure. But my point is only that there is fodder for them to work with. When I say that the type of comedy that the kids are doing, a lot of it is right-wing in the sense that Eddie Murphy's stand-up special Raw was right-wing. In what year did that come out? Does anybody have that in front of them? It was 87. There you had something that in its time, you would not look at that and say, wow, this is a really regressive show. But it absolutely made jokes at the expense of gay people, which used to be standard in stand-up. Mm-hmm. Made jokes at the expense of women. The idea of women being equal. The idea, the talking about the way divorce works. Mm-hmm. The concept that like men are not getting the best in the modern world at all. That women have all the power. Like all of those positions, like that stuff, you know, went down very smoothly at the time. Yeah. When I hear people that are in their teens doing jokes, they're very big on absurdist stuff, and it's not so much. Here's a joke about how black people are inferior. It's more, here's a joke that proves I'm not scared to talk about these subjects. Yeah. There's nothing edgy about saying, hey, you know, women have had it rough over the centuries because that you can get everywhere. They're, they're conservative kind of by default because it's, it's kind of reactionary to how the culture works, which normally that process is very healthy that people don't just swallow what they hear on the television, that they don't just go along with what's polite to say in public, right? It's just that it's one thing when the power structure is conservative and the messages that's coming up from the grassroots underground is, you know, anti-war, you know, pro-women's rights, things like that. When it's reversed and a lot of ideas have been accepted into the mainstream, it's scary because you feel like oh my gosh this is the hitler youth here but i don't think that these are future nazis in the making i think a lot of them are rebellious young people and if you're going to be rebellious right now this is what it sounds like and you're you're going to say well yeah but trump is president but trump is universally criticized across most aspects of popular culture so it is still an underground, edgy opinion to be pro-Trump. Because on Reddit, you know, that the Donald subreddit is like in danger of being banned at any moment. And all of the splinter alt-right subreddits are already gone. So they can't, they don't in any way feel like they're part of the power structure. Mm-hmm. They feel like they're part of, oddly enough, the resistance. You're right on because... Somehow the right owns politics right now. They have both houses and the presidency. They have the Supreme Court. They have most state and local governments. And yet the left has the culture. Like we own culture at this point. Or at least like what what mainstream culture is and what's dictated. So somehow they're in power but still get to present themselves as victims. Yeah, for sure. And that's fascinating, Jason, when you're talking about this – way that comedy is being used against whatever the prevailing thing is. It's fascinating how that process made life better for a lot of people who it ought to be better for really rapidly. I feel like even especially looking at just the progress of gay rights in the last, say, 25 years, Mm -hmm. it's 
unbelievable how much has happened in a good way that's improved things. I think comedy probably greased the wheels and made that easier in a lot of cases. And now suddenly that it's finally better, comedy is just being used the other direction. <laughs> and it sucks. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of things that like we also hold up pretty recently as like great liberal shows and stuff like Chappelle's show and things that that's from 2003 that a lot of those sketches you couldn't do nowadays you know some of them you know make fun of LGBT people or make fun of women in a way that they'd get trashed off the air nowadays and at the time and even now we still hold that up as like one of the greatest shows of all time that has a liberal you know progressive view this is the part that the, what you just said about the sort of the paradox between Republicans seeming like they're in power, but the culture as a whole is clearly moving to the left, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, ac- acceptance of interracial marriage was an extreme minority opinion as recently as the 70s. And where now no one would would come out and say, well, you uh, know, like argue for a law banning racial marriage, right? Yeah. And, you know, the acceptance of gay marriage is now in the majority happened very, very quickly. Like as a country, we became very liberal acceptance of uh, marijuana legalization happening very fast. Like that's now a majority opinion, which would have been unthinkable in the 80s. And mm-hmm. to just yeah. say no, Nancy Reagan, 80s, my God. Well, that's that's not that long ago. I, that's my lifetime. Yeah. I, I even remember election night 2016. Everything was going terribly. And then also the news was like, but hey, marijuana legalization passed a few places. So cool. Even as the entire country was voting against liberal politicians, there were relatively liberal policies sailing through. Yeah. And the the number, if you want to get more technical over the last hundred years, like the number of pages of federal regulations has steadily gone up. The amount of stuff we're taxing has gone up. The amount the government is spending has gone up. Like we keep talking about, you know, gosh, we're slashing this program to the bone. You can go right now, go Google a graph, whether you look at it in sheer dollars, whether you look at it as percentage of of GDP, the government's gotten bigger. And so it's weird because this was the thing about talk radio is that even though, you know, at one point, you know, 1994, Republicans seized both houses of Congress, it still was like, oh, gosh, people, there's so much work to do. You know, the, the taxes are higher than ever, blah, 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 immigrants, uh, whatever. And that right there is the key to all of this, because we keep saying, well, it's just so obvious that the Republicans are just punching down. You step into that sphere. If you just spent a week listening to them talk, go on Fox News and don't don't hate watch it. Just listen to it. Impossible. Which is impossible for, for me. <laughs> I get I get really upset. But there is an alternate reality, a black and white mirror world that flips. For us, if somebody is doing a joke much mocking feminists, that's that's punching down, right? Because males control the power structures, males are all the CEOs, most of the politicians, women have traditionally, you know, been underrepresented. Therefore, that's punching down at women. In the conservative sphere, they're saying a joke-mocking feminist gets you fired from any job. It gets your show boycotted. It gets you expunged from polite society. You lose your stand-up comedy show, whatever. Therefore, jokes about feminists are punching up at a leftist male power structure that clearly tries to censor criticism of feminists. Because they can point out all of these examples where you're not allowed to say that thing. Where we're saying, well, yeah, but you're not allowed to say that thing because it's punching down. 
That's yeah. where I think their logic breaks down because they're the logic that they're employing there is skewed because even if they're saying it's punching up, it's still punching up at the men who control those things. So then ipso facto, you're punching down if you're making fun of feminists. Well, even I remember they uh, there were several rallies in this past year where uh, it was mainly white nationalists, but it was framed as free speech. Like, oh, we're having a free speech rally and mm. it's it's exclusively white people. But, you know, come on. Down. <laughs> and uh, there is something there where, like you say, like the, lo- the logic breaks down. And also, like you say, Jason, I I see why they have that logical through line anyway. Like, I see why they even though I don't think it works or <laughs> makes any sense. But yeah. it comes from a place of like fear rather than a place of empathy like if they're attacking feminists it's because they feel threatened by women becoming equals and and whatnot they're doing a post hoc logic on it rather than starting from the place of oh women are equals and humans first and then building your logic from there but i guess my point is that they do believe it one mistake we make when you look at people who's outside of your bubble or inside of another bubble is that they're pretending to believe what they say they believe, but deep down they know they're wrong. Deep down they know that it's evil, but they, they, you know, they, I can say having lived within that, I, no, I truly believed it. I truly believed I was standing up for the little guy. I truly believed that those jokes were going after the people who needed going after. I was not sitting up every day like, how can we focus more wealth in the hands of the <laughs> capitalists who control, who secretly are ruining society? You know, how can we exploit the Earth's natural resources? My <laughs> argument back then, for instance, when making fun of environmentalists, this is a great example, I feel like. Environmentalists are very, very big about recommending you do things that only a rich environmentalist can do. Well, you know what you need to do? You need to eat local. You need to go down to the farmer's market and get the stuff that was, you know, and it's like, okay, for someone who works minimum wage and they've got two jobs and they struggle like to get to have time to cook for the kids and all that to guilt them about how bad McDonald's policies are on the environment. And you know, well, you know, that beef was imported from this country and they pollute and you know, that burger is terrible for you. It's like, yeah, but I had to stop and go through the drive-through to get hot food for my kids because I'm in between two jobs and your advice to me. And and this is why the skewering of celebrities is so big on the right, because they will bring out some column from Gwyneth Paltrow. That's like, well, you know what you should do? You should grow your own food. (laughs) (laughs) Me me and my personal trainer both do this. And my personal (laughs) chef, we grow our own herbs. Why can't you? And then trying to guilt them. And for instance, the thing about coal, coal is really, really dirty. Coal is also very, very cheap. So if you're worried about a poor person being able to keep the lights on and to heat their home and cool their home, you you love coal. So a lot of the criticisms are framed around standing up for the little guy. It's Mm. the small businesses that struggle with regulations, not the corporations because a small business can't afford a room full of lawyers to read through the regulations. It's the little guy trying to start out and, you know, and get a a little shop cobbling shoes together that the evil government's going to, going to crush his dreams under the regulations. It's always phrased as standing up for the little guy. When you go on 4chan, any time there's a terrorist attack or any time there's not a terrorist attack, 
<laughs> you will see plenty of stuff screaming insults about Muslims. That's always framed as a defense of the victims of terrorism, a defense of the people who live in those countries who don't want to be Muslims, a defense of women. They have all sorts of memes and stuff about, well, American feminists seem to hate jokes about women, but they seem fine with Muslims, and they'll show like a woman in a hijab, and it's like they're fine with this. That's a valid point, that you're forced to straddle the line between being accepting of a culture, but the culture you're being accepted of does not agree with your progressive values. They are allowed to skewer that, and to someone who feels that same way and feels like there's hypocrisy there, the jokes that are crafted correctly and the memes that are crafted correctly, they will laugh, and it will be a genuine laugh. So how come there isn't like a mainstream conservative comedy then? Because if there is real hypocrisy on the left and there is real hypocrisy, why can't that be funneled into like a a mainstream conservative comedy show? I don't know. And and yeah. I think that's a great question because I feel like there's an a cultural inertia there that prevents it. And I think the answer is similar to why aren't there more women in stand-up? Our easy answer is, well, they get harassed out of it. That's too simple because even before that stage they don't get there. Like even before that stage, they're told like, this is not the place for you. Right. So, so somewhere further up the pipeline, they get diverted into, into other things. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. again, I think the message that a network is not going to accept a show. Can you imagine like a version of Saturday night live that has sketches about how wrong abortion is? Yeah. Like it's jokes about like unborn babies being killed. Like it just, it, that sounds insane. But we did have sketches it. that attacked liberals. Like there were, there was a sketch, this awesome sketch that Chris and Sarah wrote that was about how progressive men use progressive credentials to try to like hit on women, but it's like just oh, as yeah. sleazy as the, you know, as the gross right wing guys who do it. You're coming at the left for not being left enough. Yeah, that's You're a good not point. coming at them for yeah. being too left. And yeah. that's the difference. I don't know if this sucks to say or not, but it's just, it's so hard to make it in comedy. Like, you really yeah. have to hit the lottery a couple times to make it in comedy, no matter how talented you are. That if most shows have kind of a liberal skew, then you're going to produce comedians who also have a liberal skew because those are the people who are going to get jobs. And those are the people who are going to, it's like a self-propagating cycle that once most of these shows have that kind of skew, if you're a right-wing guy, there's just not jobs. Yeah, you'd have to, you have to build your own space. And exactly. the internet's only starting to allow that. So yeah. it's still going to take some time if that ever develops. Yeah. There's also, I think there's also might be an element of uh, comedy, unlike many jobs, is a job where there's often a step as you go toward it of move to a giant city. And then, oh, yes. And yes. Many people, including uh, Jason, especially, have done amazing work with our current political divide being very urban and rural. I could imagine someone even having much more conservative leanings and then moving to a city as a step toward pursuing comedy and then just their their viewpoint shifting, them becoming yeah. uh, more in line with just the city around them, not even the industry itself. That's an awesome point because, I mean, a lot of times to succeed in comedy, you have to be in a dense 
city area that has a lot of theaters, that yeah. has a lot of comedy clubs, that has a lot of podcast studios and productions going on. And those aren't happening in rural you know, rural places where most conservatives are. Those people just have, yeah. you know, the internet or local, you know, well, bar shows to do. And there's like, there are self-starters who are doing it. It's just the volume of people in cities. It probably points the whole industry, uh, that, that city urban liberal way. That might be the whole answer of why there isn't conservative <laughs> comedy. Oh, man. It's just that their <laughs> comedy is in the cities because of the volume of people and cities are liberal. Oh, I mean, if we nailed it, we nailed it. Uh, <laughs> there might be more to it. I don't know. But yeah, that's something. <laughs> that's kind of blowing my mind right now. In general, I think a lot of them who they find that to make it, they just leave that out of the act. Joel Hogson, the Mystery Science Theater 3000 guy, like he's like an evangelical Christian. Wow. And Weird Al Yankovic oh. is extremely, he's extremely religious. And you guys didn't know that because neither huh. of them are going to do a bit about abortion or capital gains taxes they've learned you know you, you learn from you, you learn to read the you you learn to read the room and you know when you're going on you're never it's starting out it's never just you right you're you're part of a night of comedians yeah exactly if people show up to an open mic night they have a general sense of what they're going to hear or maybe they're familiar with one of the comics but unless you put up a banner that's conservative comedy night the other com- comedians with you are not going to be conservatives. And so you're you're playing to an audience that just heard a bunch of jokes mocking your point of view. And then you're going to get up there and like start, you know, there were certain things that are considered conservative comedy now that you could do. You could certainly do jokes about trans people 10 years ago. You could do but in terms of like openly stating that as, as a position the way you absolutely can openly state like openly mock you know, anti-abortion people or whatever, it's just a non-starter because the audience is going to be against you. The other comedians are going to be against you. Yeah, I'm not saying they would be like mean about it because I think most comedians, you guys work with, I think most stand-ups are generally very nice accommodating people. Is that is that correct? It depends. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's, it, I mean, it definitely has a That's range. an interesting question, actually. I, I think it's a an enormous range of people, partly because the you don't have to work through a, a system of expensive classes or anything. You can just show up and do it. And so there's a pretty big range, I think. But I think it, your, your point about audiences is, like, right on. It's just so hard to make it in comedy that if you don't appeal to your audience at every step of the way... You're just not going to make it. So the people who might be conservative comedians are just going to be performing to people who, with their arms crossed who aren't laughing, and then they just won't get booked. Or there are people, like we've talked about, who are so explicitly branding as, I am a conservative comedian. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then they're specifically playing to a, Larry, a sizable audience that can pay them on the internet. But like, how does Larry the Cable Guy, how did he come up? Yeah, I think he was a radio guy. He was, his name is Dan Whitney, if I'm remembering right, and he was a radio guy. And then I was, I was thinking about that tour they did because... But when they organized a tour of Jeff Foxworthy from the typically conservative Mm -hmm. South and Larry the Cable Guy and other Southern guys, they had to specifically call it like the blue collar comedy tour, right? Like they needed to, in a coded kind of way, brand it as conservative or at least rural. Meanwhile, I think of when there was a tour of Brian Posehn, Maria Bamford, Patton Oswalt, people who, among other things, have done some of my favorite 
especially Pat Oswalt, like anti-Bush stuff, when they did a tour, they called it the comedians of comedy. It was just directly, you know, comedians. When it's actually, it was actually an incredibly particular indie sort of sensibility. Sure. It was really great. But somehow that is the mainstream, though. That yeah. kind of like liberal indie yeah. vibe. And it was also a joke about the original Kings of Comedy, sure. but it was still, uh, I, I don't know, that jumps out to me. Yeah, that, that they really could funny. just be, that particular kind of comedy could just describe itself as comedy. Yeah. You don't need to put any modifiers <laughs> on it. <laughs> That's extremely important, though, because if the default is left-wing, if your point of view as a human being is is more right-wing, and if in order to find that, you have to go to something that's explicitly labeled as such, those separate outlets tend to become more and more extreme. Because now, see, you have branded it as, here's where conservatives come to breathe fire. Where if I join that other comedy tour, if I want to go up and just do prop comedy, it's fine. Nobody's going to be sitting there like, where's the anti-Trump stuff? You know, I came to hate <laughs> Trump. It's just, the, it's just comedians. It's just comedy. It's just, and it can be, it can be anti-Trump. It can be anything. It can be observational. So, but if I'm a conservative, my only chance is out here outside of that arena in my own arena that's called, you know, the whatever comedy, the the red state comedy tour, you know, and you're up there like they booked like Steve Bannon to give like an opening statement. Now it gets, it, the same thing happened to Fox News where they had decided that journalism had become more and more left wing, which I believe it had. So they went off and started their own outlet that would be fair and balanced, but that's not what happened. Because their entire selling point had to be, hey, this is the safe place for conservatives. Therefore, it just got more and more and more right wing over time until you had a show with Glenn Beck saying that Obama was like planning to put Americans into concentration camps. And that's on your news network. Right. That happens in comedy, too. And if you expunge people from the, you know, the town square and they're off, they'll, they will go find their own gathering places. And I guarantee you their viewpoints will become much, much more extreme than what it otherwise would have been because it just, you, you create that feedback loop. Yeah. Right wing people have t- kind of taken solace in radio and podcasts and like the deep corners of the internet because that's where they can still do that. And then the only people in those corners are other right-wing people. So it's just this like feedback loop of getting more and more extreme. So, you know, if you're that's if you problem. have a conservative radio show that's only listened to by other conservative people, then you're going to have a positive feedback loop to get more conservative. And so yeah. it just kind of spirals until you only have the Alex Joneses of the world and the Milos of the world being the ones who stand out because they just went so crazy and so extreme in these little like positive feedback loops. This is where I wind up disagreeing with a lot of my progressive liberal friends because crack, uh, you know, a lot of people aren't familiar with the brand. We're basically like a, a Marxist commune uh, <laughs> or cult. Yeah. I, I know some of this is from, is due to me from my background, being from Trump country, being someone who my my comedic sensibilities for a long time were defined by South Park, which is not explicitly right wing, but is very much we're going to skewer the feminists right alongside the Bushes. You know, we're going to skewer yeah. everybody. Mm-hmm. The characters calling each other fag, you know, which they were doing till like two years ago. 
you know, they've got gay characters that are positive, but it's like, no, nah, this is the way we talk. You know, the, we make fun of everybody. We make fun of the gays. We make fun of the streets. We make fun of the trans people. And that was my point of view. And I thought, I thought that was equality because I thought, well, everyone's getting mocked equally. You don't have to explain to me the problem with that. I now know the problem with that. But at the time it made sense. They're a fascinating example to me because they, I feel like very recently have felt that there's a, they feel there's a mistake in that too. It seems like right after the election, they said, oh, the way we covered Hillary and Trump as being two sides of the same coin was probably not accurate or responsible. (laughs) And we're very sorry. And we're just going to like skip Trump stuff for a while. We don't know what to do. But until then, they were completely on board with that exact approach, I think. Yeah. Where I disagree with my other progressives on Twitter and where I interact with, with these people is that if a progressive, or just to forget about progressive comedian, if a comedian, regardless, one who they consider to be on their side, if they step outside of, out of line, like Dave Chappelle and his most recent his Netflix stand-up special had some stuff about trans people in there. Yeah. Had some other stuff about, you know, about women, about modern society. We're very quick to demand ideological purity in that act. I know he didn't get fired or anything for that, but there's a lot of like extreme harsh criticism of anyone who doesn't perfectly walk the line. I feel like that is self-destructive because I feel like that is feeding this dividing of into polar opposites. Yeah, where we demand perfect ideological purity in our comedy, and mm-hmm. then we're going to expel anyone who doesn't perfectly conform, and those people will inevitably find a home because there's a market out there. And I'm scared that we are feeding, even with what we do at our job, I'm scared that we're feeding that divide more and more and more. I don't know how to address it at all. Like I, I to say that like we're gonna invite an alt right person to come write a column at Cracked in the name of balance. That is something that is difficult for me to process and figure out how that would work without it feeling like a betrayal. Yeah, the thing that will help is just once it's just time. Just like once Trump is gone, once we've kind of moved past this era. Because right now, everyone is so angry and so on edge and so scared of what Trump might do as he start like yesterday was announced he might start like a secret spy agency to counter the FBI and just have like a right wing FBI that's like his own force he's like you know we don't know if he's gonna like get us into a nuclear war with Korea we don't know if he's gonna take more rights away from trans people or or other LGBT people we just don't know what he's gonna do so there's so much fear I think you know, there's the pendulum swing. Once it swings back left, assuming the GOP doesn't gerrymander so aggressively and kill the voter roll so aggressively that we can get a few seats back. Once we get a House back or a Senate back or the White House back, then I think things will start to calm down and you'll start to see more of these more nuanced centrist arguments acceptable again. I think the the ideological purity comes from a place of fear and anger right now at Trump. I feel like there's been there was so much rage to from various corners about Obama and about uh, younger Bush in mm-hmm. particular. And and I don't know, I, I would like to think there that we things calm down in a way where eventually I can like explore media options more or something like that. Sure. Like, like I'm trying to think of what kind of 
conservative comedy outlet or platform or something would like what they would need to do to draw me in, like make me excited about checking out their stuff. Because like you say, like you say about the tensions right now, they're so high that even the the language of like like when we get seats or when we get a house, like it does feel very much like we and I'm I'm not part of a party you know, personally oh, okay. or, or like running for a seat, you know? Yeah. I'm but, in it, the but it does feel party, that way. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it does it does feel like territorial and important. Seems like I don't know how and when a shift would happen, but I think you're right that the, the high tensions make it uh, hard. Yeah. It just makes it so that we're so it's so easy to throw someone under the bus now. Yeah. Like someone who's even slightly off base will just get thrown under the bus on Twitter. And it's also very easy for a public shaming now because of how powerful Facebook and Twitter and, you know, Reddit are, is that if someone doesn't agree with you even a little bit, the entire world can shit them in yeah. 10 minutes. Like yeah, the, yeah. the the entire world turned he Louis C.K. went from being the greatest stand up of all time to being a pariah in 10 minutes after that article. Yeah. So like and deservedly. But yeah, yeah very but like deservedly. It's, but it's, it's just instant. it's easier to turn. It's easier to go all at once. Fuck you. Yeah. And I think some of the ideological purity aspect, it might come from we're only a few years into being able to find out what anyone thinks about stuff immediately <laughs> from our desk or pocket. Like yeah. we, I would imagine in say the eighties, you just had to be like, Oh, what does he think of that? Nah, I don't know. Maybe and now, and now I type and weeks. I find out, you <laughs> yeah. know, and I, I go, I go for it. You know, there's a very, very low energy cost to finding out what side you feel people are on in the process of polarizing. Yes. Yeah, that's a great point. Louis C.K. is a great example because I saw many think pieces after the accusations came out where it's like, well, see, this also proves that his comedy was never funny. <laughs> it's like, well, it's like, well, a lot of those jokes about his sex drive and masturbation don't seem so funny now. It's like, well, you know, that was confessional. That was that whole his whole appeal was that he was talking about his own flaws. What did you think he was doing there? Like, if he played the role of, like, you know, like, if we found out that Tom Hanks was doing this stuff instead, and you said, well, yeah, you go back and watch, Ugh. you know, some of those feel-good movies, you know, it, it's not the same. I would agree. Louis C.K.'s bit was about how he's not in control of his impulses, his, his hunger, his his drive, his sex drive, his, like, the thoughts that go through his head. Like, he, his whole thing was about... Like telling women, like like it's worse than you think. Like we, like we, men are the worst thing that will ever happen to you. And when people are like, "Boy, that you know, sure looks different now, knowing what is he's like." It's like, no, it to me it makes it more real. He was trying to dissect himself. I'm not feeling sorry for him. He became a millionaire and and was a creep, but his comedy was still great. It was, he was still great at it. Yeah. He still and he brought up truths about myself. That it was a relief to hear. I'm not comfortable with the things I think about sometimes. I'm not comfortable with my urges. And to, that's what comedy does, you know. And he pulled that out and said, yeah, I'm I'm worse than you. I'm the worst of, of any of you. You know, let me tell you what my day is like. And talking about the depression, talking about the self-loathing, even after being successful, how he still, you know, was so hard on himself. I certainly know what that's like. So it's weird because it's like, why can't we just say... He shouldn't be rewarded for acting this way. You know, he deserves to lose his platform. But to do like a Stalin-esque purge of him from our... <laughs> I get that we don't want him to get enriched 
from this. I get that we don't want like his stand-up specials on Netflix, so he's still making millions of dollars. I get it. I do. But God, it, it's so self-defeating because it continues to send that message that, well, if we just don't don't show his, his stand-up act, then uh, it's all gone away. It's all, you know, just it's, pretend it's all like he never from existed. the world. Pretend like I didn't laugh at it. Pretend yep. like I didn't. It didn't have value to me. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It is weird with him too, because I think if he had, and uh, obviously I don't wish this on anyone, but if he had died last year, he would have been remembered as the greatest stand-up comic of all time, and oh. there'd be you know memorials oh, yeah, for like him in memorial, like you know comics would be up on stage talking about how much of an influence it'd be like Carlin. It's like with some athletes when they have some years to go, but people are like already a Hall of Famer already. Yeah. Like he's he'll he'll have more career, but he did it already. And if they did, and he, he was just there. died, yeah. If he just yeah. died, this I don't know. It would it, yeah. he probably would have been remembered, and his you know his stuff would have been made into gold and everything. So and it was yeah. it was a strange feeling with everything coming out about him, and I and I was reading some pieces that. We're saying, and especially tweets and opinions that we're saying he just wasn't funny in general. Like, like, oh, I just never liked his comedy in general. And I had the kept having the thought, like, well, that special called 2017, where he did a chunk about 20 the the year 2017 being evidence Christians dominated the world. That's a funny chunk. I don't. But if I say <laughs> that, I'm awful. Even I just feel the chunk is good. You know, um, like it's a lot of pressure to take in. You know, it's to hard hate to live the chunks. With. Yeah, because in addition to this supporting a sex creep stuff, you are taking a political side, right? Because you're saying that women don't matter, feminists don't matter, whatever, because, you know, so you, you, that's why you're afraid to like voice your support for him. Because again, everything is aside and it's like, well, I don't want to betray the people who are out there saying you know, well, yeah, we, we should have seen this guy was a creep a long time ago. We shouldn't have taken this long. I've been trying to think of where where comedy can go from here, like how we can make it something that feels like it's more for everybody, even though I feel it's for everybody, you know? Uh, and it seems like that kind of bubble that some people are in and then others are in another bubble makes it difficult. Like if somebody presented me with, oh, this is great conservative comedy, my expectation would be, no, it's just in that bubble probably, and, and you recommending it are probably in it too. Yeah, you know? Like you what's a way them. forward for making something that picks out the hypocrisies of everybody, as we've said. I don't know if there is one. Yeah, there's too much hate right now. When it comes to like comedy, the example I want to bring up is the show Family Ties. Do both of you generally know what, aside from being the show that Michael Fox came from, do you know what Family Ties, what its place in the culture was? Do you know why it was a deal? My parents point me to it partly just because... Yeah, because Michael J. Fox's character is named Alex and Alex P. Keaton, and he was like a uh, Reagan Republican in a family of liberal people, right? That was the structure of it. Correct, because before that, you had the show All in the Family, you know, one of the great sitcoms ever made, and that was a very conservative dad who was dealing with a world that had gotten away from him, right? Like, was dealing with a post-war, you know, world that was becoming more progressive, and that's what it was about. Family Ties flipped that on its head for the, the Reagan era. They, you had a bunch of hippies that had grown up, right? Because this was the 80s, so they were entering their 40s. They had kids that had now grown up, and their kids were Reagan conservatives. Or, or specifically, Alex was a Reagan conservative. Yeah. Writers of the show, obviously very, very liberal. 
the point of the show was that the good guys were the parents and the Alex was going to be their dickhead conservative kid <laughs> and like the, their comedy foil. And the whole point was, gosh, can you imagine like raising somebody like this? Right. Yeah. It was remarkable that he would feel that way as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. They started airing the show and were shocked that their fan mail was in favor of Alex. They were inundated with fans like, gosh, huh. it's just so cool to see a conservative on TV. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Like, yeah, I see Alex. I love him. I, you know, his the way he slaps down his dad's arguments or whatever. And they were shocked. They assumed that Hollywood was the whole world, and that we're all suffering under Reagan. So let's make a show about what it's like to deal with these Reagan dickheads, not realizing that. You're actually talking about most of America, (laughs) that they're not cartoonishly evil walking around wanting to destroy things and hating women, hating black people, you know, because Reagan was Trump before Trump was Trump. A lot of the same rhetoric, a lot of the same everything, weird hair that everybody made fun of. And they couldn't grasp that out there in the world, in the real world, was a whole bunch of regular folks who were nice people who actually supported Reagan quite a bit. And I really do worry every day that we in the comedy world are in that position of just assuming that, well, we only need to make comedy for the sane people, you know, for the the normal Hmm. people, the ones who don't. It's like somebody's voting for Republicans in all these elections, all of these local and state elections and all of these people that, you know, that keep getting elected. Somebody's casting those votes uh, and I'm scared that we're not serving them. And I don't know, I will confess, I don't know how to go back. Even if we wait until Trump leaves office two months from now. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm not going to be the first one to write a thing about, well, some of Trump's ideas were okay, because it's like, no, everything associated with him is toxic. It's hard to do comedy in like the middle of a war. It's so hard to do fun material about everything that's that's totally open to everything if you feel like too much is a crisis and too much is on the line you mm-hmm. know with particularly trump i don't want to give any like boost of any kind to the like little uh like side things that might be good because uh there's just too much wrong <laughs> yeah the core is too evil to nibble off the edges yeah I guess I would have to leave it at this, saying, talking to our audience out there, some of whom are still Republicans, and they just tolerate this. I hope that through all of it and through all of it that is to come, that if we've criticized those positions, that we've still treated people like human beings, like that we've that if we've criticized you, we've criticized you as like a, as a human being who should have known better, mm-hmm. like appealing to what's best in people and and with the assumption that you probably do want to be a good person and we disagree on how to do it. But I hope that in our criticism, like, like what I said earlier about going after people for things that have nothing to do with their opinions, going after them, you know, mocking people who are from the South. Yeah. From rural areas, mocking them for being Christians, mocking them for having religious beliefs, mocking them for being a few years behind the rest of us in terms of like, you know, progressive attitudes or things like that. Like, I hope that we've kept or will keep the criticism like on a human level and not uh, like on a dehumanizing level, 
because I think that's all I can do. It's not fairness in the sense that, well, let's have a Klansman on to answer this column from the (laughs) fairness in the sense that, that we're fair in, in how we're criticizing and that we back up what we're saying and back up why we're saying it and feel like you, your point of view was given a fair shake, but we, this outlet disagrees with it. It just does. We have a bunch of people who happen to disagree with it and we're not going to pretend otherwise. I'm not going to sit here and, lie and say oh no we, we're metal the road like that's not true we fail we as a comedy community probably fail at this a lot and that's that's the best i can help ask from myself is that we still try to find like the human in all of this and like a approach it that way if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah. i think kimmel had such a great segment segment like a month or so ago that was just like, hey, Trump supporters, we get it. Like, he was charming and charismatic and seemed to summarize everything you're feeling, but you got duped. You got tricked. And it's, like, okay to admit you're wrong. Like, it's okay to come around to the other side. And no one's going to judge you for having supported Trump and now coming around to the side of the Jedi. (laughs) Yeah, I think they'll be primarily excited for you. Yeah. (laughs) They would hold you up. You know, if there's like Trump regrets Twitter and like stuff like that, that people hold up like, look at these people. They like they've they've seen the light. They uh, I would I would react like they were somebody in my life who had stopped drinking or something. You know what I mean? I'd be like, oh, my God, good for you. Hey, wow. Steps. (laughs) First step is admitting you're wrong. You are so wrong about that. I think when someone admits they're wrong or backs up a little bit, I think we go do this end zone dance and we mock them. That Trump regrets, regrets Twitter is not welcoming people back into the fold. It's like, ha ha, you, you thought you were getting free health care. I see people retweeting stories of, well, this person voted for Trump and now they're dying of cancer and begging for donations. That's what you get. And we, in many ways, are not nice people. And we, in many ways, make politics very personal. You know, people, the reason people resist changing their point of view is because your self-image is like, you don't want to admit you were wrong. I don't want to admit I was wrong. Like, it's hard to do that. I think we create such an unwelcoming environment where it's like, the more you crap on people for reasons that have nothing to do with policy, the more they say, well, I don't want to join them just because they're assholes. Uh, like they just like they hate they hate small towns. They're making fun of trailer parks as if it's something you should be ashamed of living in a trailer park. It's like, well, guess what? We're we're poor. I thought you were supposed to be the party of the poor people. If you truly want to do that, if you truly want to make it welcoming for people to come back, you've got to think in terms of how you talk about them. Are you talking about them as human beings who simply had an incorrect opinion and now upon gaining more information can change it? Or are you talking about them as a separate species that needs to be eliminated from the earth? If you truly want to change people's minds, make our side seem like something they'd want to be a part of and stop like being so like, like we can be very smug about things and we can really talk about people like they're not people. Uh, that doesn't help the cause. It makes us feel better. It's fun, 
but it doesn't it doesn't help the cause yeah i think that's what i meant when i brought up the kimmel segment because he was just appealing to the like human nature of like it's okay to be wrong it's okay to have been duped it's okay to like have you know you ordered crystals online because you thought it was gonna like heal your psoriasis like it's okay because someone can because you know there's predators out there trump is a predator he's an ideological predator and it's you know maybe your neighbors you know everyone in your community was talking about trump all the time and how evil hillary was and so you got tricked by like the like mob mentality of it it's like you got to admit you were on the wrong side or you were wrong or at least that your heroes were duping you yeah and in a world where we're all wrong at least some of the time yeah 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 i mean it's a insane world that is uh more and more fully reported and uh thank you both for being in it with me this has been a lot of fun to talk oh, about. thanks for having me i really appreciate it yep thank you Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Jason Pargin and to Zach Bornstein, and most of all to our valued friend who we wish to bring a fantastic podcast, you. Our food notes this week contain all kinds of different comedy and news and just general trends in the country that we talked about on today's show. There is a lot there. Also, we are back at Los Angeles' UCB Sunset on January 13th of 2018. There are no tickets on sale yet, but mark your calendars because it's going to be a whole new year, baby. I just like saying baby. Anyway. As far as this show goes, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered and edited by Chris Souza. And if you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A service that deserves no criticism whatsoever. You can find me on Twitter under the name at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And let me tell you, we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.